Welcome to our latest installment of the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm James Price, Cybersecurity Recruitment Consultant here at Evolution, and today I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing recruiting and developing cyber talent. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by a fantastic panel, so let's kick off with some introductions. Richard, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Sure. Um, my name's Rich Fowler. I'm the CISO at the Royal Mint. Uh, my background is predominantly in sort of managed services and consulting, um, and initially sort of specialised in network security. I've been a CISO now for about two and a half years, um, so I suppose I'm, I'm poacher turned gamekeeper to some extent. <laughs> Okay, great. And Andrew? Hi, yes, I'm Andrew Kempster. I am uh, Global Head of Critical uh, Security Incident Management at DXE Technology. Uh, My background is predominantly digital forensics, starting off uh, in the police in 2005, and then in the last seven years or so, migrating over into information security and incident response. That's me. Thanks, Andrew. And finally, James? Hi, my name is James Reese, but feel free to call me Jim. I'm the Managing Director of Rose Thorn Security. Uh, we've been running for about 15 years now. Uh, I have a 25-year sort of background in InfoSec, and I think I pretty much covered everything in that time at one point or another other than forensics, Andrew. So, um, yeah, I've been an auditor, still am, for PCI DSS, ISO 27001. Uh, I've been a CISO, still am, to a certain extent, with some of the CISO as a, you know, CISO as a service functions and for various other uh, concerns that I have. So, yeah, it should be interesting, our discussion. <laughs> Great. Now we've done some introductions, let's kick off with the questions. So, Richard, your f- first question to the panel was, what strategies have the panelists used to both recruit and retain staff in an ever more competitive market? So, Richard, if you could provide some context around your question, please. Sure. I think from my perspective, I find my myself for the, the first time in a, back in Wales um, in an area where there's not necessarily a, a huge amount of cyber resource and where there is, it's usually contended because a, a number of big players have decided to uh, put their socks in and around our, our sort of area. So we, we, we find ourselves competing in a market um, that's incredibly competitive and also... <laughs> You know, with the best will in the world, we're a government-owned entity and there's going to be a limit to what we're able to pay. Um, So, yeah, the question to the panellists is effectively, you know, how do you address that issue if you can't necessarily just throw money at the problem? Ooh, that's a good one. Do you want to go first, Andrew, or shall I? Oh, no, you can go first. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, I've seen a lot of this and I've actually experienced this with, with Rose Thorne. Um, you know, talent out there is becoming increasingly difficult, not only to find, but also some of some of the stuff that they're asking for as like a base wage, as as benefits, is dramatically rising. Um, and now that we're all kind of back in the office, now we're able to, to do more traveling. Um, we're starting to see a lot more, you know, even me recruiting something like a pen tester, good example. Um, we're seeing some crazy numbers that, that very comparatively inexperienced pen testers are asking for uh, with very limited experience, the sorts of numbers that, okay, you could get if you'd had sort of like five plus years and lots of experience and a track record. Um, but now, you know, comparative, dare I say it, newbies um, are asking for significant amounts of money. And when we're in a situation where a lot of businesses are still kind of recovering from that 
uh, lockdowns, the pandemic and the money that we lost. Uh, some of them have taken C-bills loans. You know, revenue available to a lot of organizations is a lot lower than it would have normally have been if we'd never had that. And it's compounded, as you say, Rich, you know, when it comes to, you know, government organizations or organizations that are nonprofit or charity organizations where, you know, there isn't as much available to, to kind of offer people, you'll tend to get the bigger boys, and you know, coming in and sweeping out all of the really, really good talent uh, or the talent that seems to be very good and up and coming um, and leaving us with very little to work with you know, on the on the lower end of the spectrum. So, the, you know, the big four, you know, those kinds of guys, they're all upskilling information security departments due to the nature of the demand that we're seeing at the moment. Um, and yeah, I think it's a big problem. And I, I, I don't know how this can be fixed in all honesty, when you have a market which is uh, with a with a very finite resource, the prices tend to go up. Uh, unfortunately, the revenues don't always necessarily go up with it. So um, you're you're kind of finding yourself in a catch twenty two. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm seeing the same thing. Um, you know, I, I I work in a large private organization, but we still see a high turnover. You know, the the money might be good it's better elsewhere and and even for the smaller businesses that the more boutique firms are throwing money out there they're throwing relocation packages they're throwing all kinds of extra bits and pieces which which are fabulous and and at the end of the day people got to work for money um what i what i've been trying to encourage in my very small piece of dxc is kind of homegrown talent um we have people who are already in there who show interests um you know that that we can try and bring them into the more experienced teams and and skill them up because you know when we've gone to uh interview outside talent very much uh, like you you've been saying is that they're asking for a lot of money but the skills aren't fabulous um, you know, and, and that's part of my question for, for later on. Um, but what we find is with, with the internal people that we have, once they get a taste of something they like, th there is there is loyalty there. I mean, again, money kind of trumps everything. And, and I think turnover within InfoSec and cybersecurity and, and digital forensics is high, not because the work is difficult, which it is. I'm not taking that away, but it's because there's always someone with more money out there. And so I think it's it's a battle against investing in in the homegrown talent, which which is working for us up to a point, and then you know looking at where's the cutoff. You know some of the courses out there, without naming names, are substantial amounts of money, and 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 it's kind of this balance of they're asking you, will you pay for this course? And you say, well. I will, but here's some small print. Or um, no, we won't because we could pay it, and then three years later you're, you're out the door. It, it's so I don't know that I don't think for me that there's no cut and dry answer to it. it. It's just there's a lot of money flowing around. Although I am seeing, especially today, um, redundancies on LinkedIn, like big, yeah. big names letting people go. Um, so maybe that's that's changing. And James, yeah, just to just to kind of like add to add to that. Um, the when I, I I do a lot of mentoring of up and coming infosec, I've I've decided that's probably the best way to go going forward. Um, and one of the first sets of things that I teach people who are just starting to go through their journey in infosec is you know learn psychology, learn comms because those are critical for whatever you're going to be doing in infosec. But um, don't 
chase the money, chase the experience, at least in the first five years. You know, if you're chasing money, you're going to end up in a dead end pigeonhole job where you're not going to learn what you need to learn because they're, they're going to they're going to make you kind of work in this one role and you're not going to get that breadth of experience that you will get in, say, a consulting firm or a smaller firm who are just going through that security process. And I've had some good results with that. But inevitably, you know, you still have to be wary because people are very quick to sweep in and start offering really good up and coming infosec people that you just need another few years to kind of develop and, and get good um, before they're ready to go out. And I, I had one situation where I said to one guy who said, you know, I've, I've been offered a job, I'd like, to, I'd like to go for it. I said, you know, don't do it. Not because, you know, I want you with us um, I want you to do well I want you to go out and develop your talent and be the best that you can but if you go too early you are going to get stuck in this position you're never going to go anywhere and you're going to be very very unhappy a year later I went out and had a beer with the same gentleman two weeks ago before I went away and and he said you were absolutely right I really wish I hadn't kind of gone you know I got more money but I'm not allowed to get involved in anything else other than what I'm just there to do um and it's I I think I think that's that's probably the best way to answer it but you you have to have access to those individuals first but I, I just think it's going to be better off if you if you pick you know talented or people you think are going to be nice and talented at the job and train them up that's the only way i think we're going to retain um, really good talent in our own local businesses you know give them the message let them understand the message and let them understand throughout the whole mentoring piece you know that there are various different things that they can learn and options that they can go down and richard yeah i just agree and really what um, James is saying they're winning around sort of building experience over cash initially and the, and the way that we've we've actually kind of put that into practice I think is you know over the the two and a half years that I've been at the Mint we've aligned ourselves very closely with the the local university the National Cyber Security Academy down at um, in Newport and you know we've been giving back I suppose to some extent by going there I've been doing lectures we've been sponsoring dissertations and we've been getting close to these students in the in the second year of their degree you know um, it's an awful term we're effectively almost grooming them to come with us it's, uh, <laughs> um, and you know it, it it has paid dividends I think there's there's a couple of sort of other th other aspects to this so that that come from there you know firstly we get them at a relatively reasonable price um, they don't come fully formed we, we need to bring them very much into our specific tech stack, into the way that we work. Um, and that involves us investing in them as soon as they sort of arrive. Um, and, you know, I think as, as both um, other panelists have sort of alluded to, you know, there's a there's an element of risk with that then, because as soon as you start to, to bring these people up to speed, then they, you know, they, they, they become commodities in the market. So we've done this in mind and, you know, we've actually built it into our strategy, into our sort of business model if you like that we expect to lose these these students who we bring in um, within a two-year period you know that's actually our target to retain them for two years um, and you know we we hope that we, we'll retain more of them you know there's signs that some of them will stay with us and will progress to um, you know promotions and move to other roles within the, the cyber organization but we're we're factoring in a, a certain amount of attrition to be perfectly honest you know that's the that, that's a model that we we've had to go with um, and the cost that we we incur in bringing them up to speed we just add that effectively to the wage cost you know we it still works out cheaper the sort of combined 
training plus initial graduate salary um, than going out to the market and getting someone with three to five years experience who, to be perfectly honest, doesn't always bring too much more to the to the table. So that that's the way that we've kind of approached that. And finally, James. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to interject in again. No, I totally agree with you, Rich. And I think, you know, just just very quickly to add to that, I think the working environment is also very important that they get trained into because if if you can get them to love the working environment they're in and and work well with the people around them, there's a lot less chance they're going to move on. Okay, you can give them a better title. You know, that's one way of doing it. You can you can give them bumps in pay. They do, you know, if they deserve the bumps in pay, they deserve the bumps in pay. But they kind of, you know, if you make it so your working environment is is, is in a situation where they they love to be there and they they are allowed to fly you know, rather than uh, held down, they're more likely to stay. I think you're right, Rich. Brilliant. Thanks for the input on that first question. Some great answers there. Next up, we have Andrew's question, which is, do you think university cybersecurity or digital forensic curriculums are giving students enough knowledge to handle hands-on technical work outside of SEAM, EDR, XDR and NDR? So, Andrew, if you could provide some context around this question, please. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to what we were discussing earlier around, you know, knowledge, uh, recruiting, homegrown talent, all that kind of stuff. What I've seen a lot of in the last six months, we, you know, we, we went through a period of intense interviews, all done remotely. Um, DXE is a, is a remote only company, really. Um, we we were bringing in these candidates who were coming in with you know cybersecurity degrees, uh, digital forensics degrees, masters, all that kind of stuff, and and they could talk around your 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 SIEM and your EDR and your XDR fluently. But when you started digging into things like the digital forensics angle, the more technical core fundamental things, they really struggle to answer these questions. Um, and I just I'm wondering, is is that something everybody is seeing? Are they not being taught the real life skills in the universities? And this is not, by the way, a criticism of the candidates because they're very clever. The people who who we speak to are very, very clever. They just don't immediately have that skill set that sometimes we're looking for. Okay, and Richard, do you want to go first on this one? Sure, yeah. Um, it's something I think I, I can speak to a bit because I've been quite close to, to a university now for, for sort of two years. And I think... I, I certainly see some of what Andrew is saying there. What I notice is that the the vendors who um, sort of work with the university are the very well known SEAM um, EDR rope vendors, and they they provide a lot of um, funding in there. Um, and the guys get a lot of hand on, hands on sort of skills in those particular platforms. So I think. Uh, Without me going out and sort of, you know, naming all the candidates, I'm sure you can uh, you can kind of hazard a guess who, who we're speaking of. I think for me, um, one, my budget doesn't necessarily run to, to go with those vendors. We're, we're probably tier two on our seam instead, so we, we don't necessarily have uh, have those specific needs. Um, but I think the, the thing that I notice more than anything and probably that the students don't get to pick up as much are the what I would actually call the sort of the underlying fundamental skills required in sort of cybersecurity. And by that, I mean, you know, hands-on networking skills, hands-on, you know, let's be blunt, Microsoft and Windows skills, you know, the, the, these technologies, you know, cover our entire industry and, you know, wh- wherever you go, whatever aspect of it you're working in, you can't, you can't avoid them. Um, 
but those companies, you know, that don't tend to gravitate, I think, to the cybersecurity courses so much, you know, they've already got a captive market. They don't necessarily need to make that investment. Um, and the things, the shortfalls that I find I'm addressing are those sort of core skills. I, I, I find that the, the theory is, is pretty much spot on that these guys are coming out with. They understand things at the theoretical level. Um, and when you're doing things like sort of threat hunting, then they've got that that methodology. They understand it. You know, they know how to be looking through the logs and all the rest of it. But, you know, when we get down to some of the real base fundamentals, like we need to go and patch all these things, um, you've got these very clever people sometimes sort of scratching their heads going, well, you know, no one ever taught me how to do that, you know, and it's it, it's almost old school IT instead. It's, it's the dull and boring stuff that we we all did on our way up. And, and I think, you know, most of us who sort of came to cybersecurity without, tent, you know, be in cybersecurity to start with. This was the the apprenticeship, almost the graft that you did in the in the data center, and and just sort of finding your way around it. And and if I've got any criticism, I think of those sort of courses is that maybe they're not able to provide that kind of underlying base sort of knowledge and you know to again to be blunt the the ability to manage legacy IT. You know, it's great that you're you're all skilled up on the latest scene, but you know, I got stuff as 15 years old lurking in the cupboard around there as well. I need to sort out. Brilliant. And James? Absolutely. Weirdly enough, Rich, um, a couple of weeks back, I ran an IP config slash renew command in a, in a command line on Windows. And some of the IT guys that I was with thought I was doing some kind of witchcraft, you know. Um, <laughs> but no, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess lectured at universities, um, which is great considering I'd never went to university myself and got a degree. We didn't have degrees in information security when I was a lot younger. It was either you kind of got in through the IT side of things, really, as a general rule. And one of the things that I've noticed, um, you know, they're quick to teach you some of the some of the technological security skills but but information security is a much broader and wider subject matter that they touch upon in areas but they don't really kind of go into real grips with i mean as i mentioned kind of a little bit earlier on when i mentor people up um and when i'm teaching people about information security i don't start with seam i don't start with xdr i don't start with endpoint security or any of the other various different technologies we'll mention them and stuff but we start with as i mentioned before communication how to write a report, how to clearly communicate something, you know, um, psychology, how to spot in a room when you, you're engaging with people, when you're not engaging with people, uh, when they're starting to get really angry and possibly going to le- leap across the room and have a pop at you because, you know, we're in security and we like to give people bad news from time to time. Um, but also, you know, a, a whole plethora of other skill sets, um, you know, how to do risk management, you know, there's a good one. You know, a lot of these guys coming guys and gals coming out of university they don't understand what really what risk management is it's a, a concept that they once made be talked about but they don't understand how to do it they don't understand the concepts behind it and they definitely don't know how to communicate that to the c-suite you know so when i i master class and mentor people up um you know it all starts with that and then we move on to the right this is defense in depth and defense in depth isn't just technology as you will see and i pull out the iceberg and i pull out all the different you know color boxes and various different things that that, that we use to kind of communicate to to, to customers and in their tra- and in training um to kind of outline that 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 you know, information security, dare I say it, you know, is a bit like a bramble bush. It's kind of part of the reason why we're called what we are. You know, if you've ever had a bramble bush 
on your hedge you can't get the bugger out it's so tightly wound in there no matter how much you cut it you can spray it you know if you don't want to kill your other plants it's actually really difficult to get rid of it and it's there to tear somebody up if they're trying to get through your hedge that's why you know you tend to have spiky hedges especially in the uk um your security needs to be like that but it's not just the technical aspects that do that you have to have good incident response you have to have good for feasible forensics as well you know looking at andrew over there um, you know, you can get taught in the concepts of what, you know, uh, forensics is, you know, using, I don't know, NCASE or one of the other various different tools out there. But you can still have people who don't understand chain of evidence and, and how that runs and, and what that is and how to, you know, do some kind of investigation that doesn't pollute the environment and ruin your own investigation, you know. So, um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, we need to rehash our university courses and we... We need to remember that a lot of university courses, they get written, they're used for about 10 years, and then finally, at some point, somebody will do a big update. There'll be minor updates along the way, but, you know, it's like old IT university courses. They teach you stuff that was 10 years old that really wasn't that relevant when you actually went out into the real world and tried to use any of it. You know, I, I remember one guy telling me, oh, I know how a hard disk works. And I'm looking at them going, that's fantastic. I can Google that in five seconds. What I want to know is can you install, you know, um, Windows uh, NT4? Yeah, I'm showing my age. Um, and network it up. Do you know, you know, later on, do you know how Active Directory works? Do you know what access control is and the principles behind it? Multi-factor authentication. Oh, I've, I've, I've set up a user account. Well, that, that again, that's great. But, you know, do you know how groups work? Do you know, you know, data, you know, sort of asset-based security? And they look at you, like, again, like you're performing some kind of witchcraft. It's like, right, let's go back to the fundamentals and the basics and build a course that teaches that. The tech stuff can be done later on, you know. Um, <laughs> the principles and the basics behind it, yes. But I do think some cases some of these vendors have a little bit more of a stranglehold than they should do. They're kind of saying, look, if we provide you all free products for you to use, you can use it for a year and all the rest of it. But you learn it our way. And it's like, guys, you know, <laughs> you're not learning a tool. You're learning how to do InfoSec. You can, you can learn to do a tool at any point in your career, you know. Um, you know, give me a proof of concept with a piece of technology in a week or two. I'll be pretty good at it by the end of it, like like any of these wonderful people on this panel. But, you know, the learning how, you know, to, to do forensics, it takes you longer than five minutes in a Google search to understand all the nuances behind it, In the you know, as, as Andrew will tell you. Um, or, you know, security architecture and the, the nature of how you defend different kind of VLANs from attack and how you segment off critical infrastructure if you were in a PCI DSS environment or the concepts of why you're doing that. Um, as Rich will probably tell you. So, I mean, that's just my my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, thank you for them answers. Hopefully uh, some of these universities which put on these courses will be listening to this podcast and making due diligent notes on it. Finally, we have James's question, which asks, we face a skill shortage before the pandemic. Do you think do you think there'll even be more of a skill shortage post pandemic? So, James, if you could provide some context on this question, please. Yeah, I can't help but think we're in a bit of a difficult situation in InfoSec for a number of reasons, and 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 weirdly enough, some of the questions have kind of uh, add to what I'm saying in many respects about you know it's expensive to get. <laughs> you know, new people. Yeah, it is. You know, are the university courses teaching the wrong things? You know, one of the things that I had when I got in 25 years ago was a very strong set of mentors over a long period of time. Um, 
And they taught me everything I know today. I had mentors who specialized in technical security because I come from a techie background. I had mentors who would then, you know, specialize in governance and understanding how a policy is written and the way to write a policy that people will understand. Learning that, you know, I had mentors teaching me learn the culture of a business before you start putting in security so you can understand what is going to be accepted, where you're going to have challenges and difficulties, asset-based security. You know, there were all these concepts that the um, that all the old school, dare I say it, being a, you know, I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm old enough. Um, I had them trained into me from good people. But as part of the pandemic, we had a lot of people who they've been sitting in the garden for long enough and they've been in InfoSec for long enough. They've got their pensions, they've made their money and they've gone, you know what, I'm just going to. I'm just going to bow out now. I'm going to use this as an excuse. I know it's definitely happened with uh, QSAs. I'm a PCI DSS QSA, um, and all of the older QSAs are pretty much gone now. There's hardly any of them left, and there's a lot of youngsters who, are, who may be good, but as, as we've already kind of attested to, they don't have necessarily all the skills that I would want if I was going to recruit them. I have to almost retrain them. I mean, do you think, you know, we're in a situation where maybe in a few years we're going to have a big problem because we've got a problem now, but we've got this two years, you know, a year and a half in the UK, depending upon where you are in the world, stretch of, of lockdown where nobody really did anything. You know, um, there's a lot of webinars, I noticed, but that's pretty much it. There wasn't any real mentoring going on. There was a lot of people wanting to get into security. Well, I had a lot of messages from people. That's why we started our YouTube channel and, and, and you know, our podcast um, saying, can you mentor me up? So we're, we're mentoring some of those people up. But what are you guys finding? So Andrew, do you want to kick us off first? Uh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, uh, exactly what you're saying. Um, I see a lot of, of chat online these days about uh, how do I get into cybersecurity? And then with that comes discussions around gatekeeping, things like that. Uh, I, I still see a lot of, of that. But I was listening to something this morning where, uh, whilst walking the dog, uh, I can't remember which podcast it was, but they were talking about, you know, people coming into cybersecurity and the the route into it. Do you need a technical background? All that kind of stuff. Um, but this person was talking about mentorships and saying, mm. you know, okay, we, we've been doing this a long time and, and we kind of ground our way up through it. As you were saying earlier on, Rich, we started doing the little bits like apprenticeship stuff stuff we moved up and up and up you know my, my background a few years ago there was this this thing on twitter called my weird infosec journey or something along those lines of, of how your career kind of progressed until you hit infosec and, and i used to drive a forklift i used to be a shelf stacker i worked in toys r us god bless jeffrey um, <laughs> but, but you know it it's it, it, I don't think it matters where you come from. It's, it's a bit of a mindset, but you do need those mentors. And, and I had three. I had three guys during my career. I still am very much in touch with all of them. And I can tell you what each one of them taught me. And, you know, I think we have to have that mentality. The, the people who have been successful in this in this stage and, and are, are good at what they do, there are enough platforms out there. You have YouTube, you have webinars, LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff is there. And, and, and if you're willing to put that time and effort in and mentor these people, you're going to fill in those gaps that maybe the universities didn't hit. And and I know very regularly when we when we interview people, they like to say that, you know, they, they mess around with Cali at home, which is great if they want to get done 
pen testing, that's fine. I'm I'm on the blue side. Um, you know, so so I like to talk about defense and, and forensics and that kind of stuff. But I remember a few years ago, God, it's it's probably about 10 years ago, I was working in a in a forensics position and I was reviewing other forensic uh, professionals' work as it was coming through. It was kind of coming through the business that I was working in. And uh, a lot of it was just throwing out what NCASE was giving them. We yeah. found this here. We found that there. And I would go back and say, why is it there? Why is it there? And and people couldn't answer these questions. And and some of it was really, really low-level stuff. And, and when I say low-level, it should be they should know this. So I started a YouTube channel doing open source forensics. Any tools that I use, they're open source, build your own images, do all this kind of stuff. And it was really uh, lots of lots of uh, communications from students. Um, you know, I, I had a, a, a Walton County, Florida Sheriff's Department contact me about trying to get, uh, at the time it was super timeline and then it became log to timeline. Um, but, you know, I still occasionally will, get, and I haven't updated it in, in years, but I still occasionally will get people reaching out with questions because I talk about, you know, things like shell bags and, and not the tools that will do it. I show the tools, but I show you in the in in the, in the uh, the registry, right? This is where you go look manually, and and that's the kind of stuff in forensics I'd like to see, and and you are seeing more of it, especially that there's there's a guy on LinkedIn, and I think it's called Black Pearl. This guy is amazing, and it's all he just puts this material out. It's, this is how you do this. This is how you do that, and that I see is more of what we need out there. Is great. You've made it to Infosec, or you want to get into it. Cool. Have a look at this. Let me show you how to do this. Let me show you how to do that. And it, it's not just the technical stuff. It's it's very much like you said, the soft skills, the risk management, how you talk to people. You know, I've I have sat in rooms virtually and physically with clients whose whose house is on fire. Mm-hmm. And and I've brought people in with me to kind of give them that experience and and they they shrink, you know, and, and the and the client is saying, This is what we're gonna do. And and you say, actually. No, that's not a really good idea. Or I want to be back up online by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And I'm sorry, that's not, not going to happen. And But but the, the the new starters are really shrinking away from the the aggression in it. And, and yeah. coming back to what you said about the psychology piece, you know, they have to recognize what's happening in the room with them. They have to read the room, right? This guy is really upset and, and understandably so. If, if our roles are reversed and a stranger was sitting there telling me, yeah, you're in trouble. Uh, that's you know, you're my target basically. But I think uh, you know a, a colleague of mine wrote a wonderful white paper around the 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 psychology of a ransomware attack, and he had some nice diagrams in there and talking about how at the start it it just climbed like this stress, 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 and then you start making the breaks, and then it starts slowly coming down, down, down. And it, and it's it was such a good paper talking around you know not just the technical piece of it, but the mental attitude of people within these these incidents and, and how you work with that to not bring them around to your way of thinking, but but just get them to you know, step back, take a breath. We're all in this together to, to help you get through this. Um, and and uh, I've gone way off track. But the, <laughs> the idea is that these are the kind of skills that, that I think you can't learn that in university, right? So this is not me saying university, go out and teach people how to do it. This is where we as kind of the seasoned professionals need to step in and go, okay, uh, let, let's let's do something online. Let's have a little class online that we can, you know, sit down with people and, and talk about what we do and, and answer their questions. Thank you, Andrew and Rich. Yeah, I think 
you know, for first part of sort of James's question, I I'm inclined to agree. I think we've before things start getting better with regards to the if you like the talent pipeline, I think there's there's every chance they're gonna get a bit worse. Um and there's a few things that I, I think go into this, you know, James sort of um alluded to, you know, retirement, people sort of uh being there in the pandemic and and maybe calling it a day. And and I think that, you know, one of the, if you want to call it downsides of paying sort of higher and average salaries is that people have been in a position, you know, certainly if they've been contracting for years and the like where, you know, they have that luxury, they can call it a day, you know, they don't necessarily have to work till till 65 and sort of drop dead in the job or whatever, you know, they can, they can call it. So I think you probably lost a few people there. Um, something else I think we've also got a flag in this industry is burnout. I think, you oh. know, we, it, 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 I see it everywhere, you know, people who sit in socks and, and stuff all day, you know, I'm, I'm an ex knock engineer myself. I know the pain of those 12 hour night shifts, you know, sitting there looking at the, at a monitor and I, I you know, it, it's a tough grind, you know, the, these people's you know they do a great job we we train them to do this thing but it it's hard it's hard mentally um and i think a lot of people who have been attracted to this you know industry they've seen mr robot they think this looks really cool um they arrive and then they end up looking at a screen endlessly for you know days at a time you know waiting for the lights to turn red and and you know slowly but surely it kind of grinds you down so i think certainly in that sense is will it get worse before it gets better there's every chance i think you know we i've seen the initiatives with trying to bring people into the industry and i think that's you know that that's great um but it'll take a few years for that to bed in certainly um with regards to what can we do to actually resolve that problem um a lot of it comes back to guys like us to be honest you know it's going to be us to solve the problem and and i i'll put that in some context because we're all guilty of sitting there i expect and sort of drawing up a job description and saying i need someone like this you know I'm I'm unicorn hunting again you know I need this this person and we've got to drop the bar to entry you know the the reality yeah. is is that we if you want more people you can't just go hunting for unicorns you know I'm going to have to you know take a few ponies as well to be to be honest you know to sort of continue the metaphor um and it's where do you kind of find these people and what, you know, what can you do? And I, I see a lot of transferable sort of skills in lots of different areas. And, you know, if I speak of our own experience that we've had at the at the Royal Mint, you know, I think there's a few things that, that spring to mind. You know, firstly, what we spoke about earlier, you know, kind of hitting students and not pressurizing them to say you need all this experience to start with, you know, taking some responsibility ourselves for bringing these people in and then saying, you know what, we're going to we're going to develop you. It, it, it's loaded with risk because as soon as we start developing them, there's every chance they leave and jump for the money. You know, it's a, it, it, it's a fact of life, unfortunately, and we just hope it works out more in our favor than it does against us. But I think there's some other things as well. You know, firstly, there's a lot of non-tech roles in cyber that we still need to fill. Um, and with those, maybe we don't need to be pushing so hard on the, you know, you need this degree or you need that. You know, I think going back to things that James has said and that, you know, about psychology, about the ability to present, these are key in our industry. You know, they're absolute necessities. You know, the, the amount of times I've seen a board or, a, you know, someone turn off because someone goes down the tech rabbit hole and starts, you know, sort of talking about something that they've got no interest in whatsoever. And you, you can see the, the kind of light 
rights going out. So the type of people that we should be bringing in, they might not have the full tech stack, but you know, if you've got good communication skills, you know, if you know how to do a good presentation, um, if you've got a bit of sort of psychological awareness and you know, you know how to read a room and all that type of thing, these are all great transferable skills and things that I think, you know, cybersecurity people should should all have. I don't really care what part of the, you know, the industry you're in. These are great things to have. Um, other things that I, I think of, um, you know, I, I speak again of, a, of an example where we, we've brought someone in from a military background and she's, you know, sort of 20 years in military intelligence and signals and not necessarily sort of hardened cybersecurity skills, but again, someone who's just been able to come in and just adapt and fit our sort of model. You know, they're really, a lot of these skills are hugely transferable and we've got to make more efforts to to bring these in. And I speak of a, another one of my team who's a, you know, 20 year old apprentice and again you know sort of bringing someone in at a very young age and just sitting them amongst those people and amongst that experience you know if you get people with the right type of aptitude um you find eventually they start to sort of learn through osmosis almost you know you sit them in a you know you sit them in a room with enough good people in there and after a while you think bloody hell he's getting good you know that's like where, where did that come from so i think there's there's a lot of that as well and and finally you know if if all else fails and you're looking for techies then my advice is go and raid the dev team the network team the server team it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and let them backfill instead i think that's a great plan thanks for that richard and james yeah, just to just to kind of um, you know, a couple of things that were sort of mentioned by both both of you, Andrew and Rich. Some of the one of the interesting things is you know we have so many more tools now to train people up and to communicate how to do things than 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 dare I say it. None of us are exactly sort of you know fresh out of school uh, than we had when we got in. You know, if you wanted to learn forensics, you had to find somebody to teach you. You know, you had to go through hard graft. You couldn't go on a YouTube channel and go, all right, today I'm going to learn how to do, you know, use Encase or how I'm going to, um, you know, do chain of evidence and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you kind of got to know what you're looking for in, in, in today's world. Uh, and you do have to filter out some of the interesting stuff or the rubbish. But we, we've got a lot more tools than we ever had. Um, I mean, across the internet was new when I got into InfoSec. You know, we didn't even have white papers back then. That's that's, that's saying something. Um, the other interesting thing that, that, that Rich mentioned, burnout, I think, is a big, big problem in InfoSec. You know, we tend to operate in a very difficult environment, culturally speaking. You know, nobody really wants the security people to be there. Nobody wants the security people to deliver them the the, the bad news that, that, that they're going to get, that we're seen as doom mongers and, you know, hide it from the security person, you know, the, 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 the as we used to call it back in the day, you know, the man in the suit. When the man comes around, you know, the old song, uh, you know, hide, get away and try and hide things from them. Maybe it's because I'm an auditor they do that all the time but um it, it has a toll on you mentally because if you're if you're you know and, and andrew was stating it earlier on you know when you've got somebody who's angry at you because of something that's been done to them by somebody else they can't shout at that person unless that person's in the room as well it has happened it's you that's delivering them the bad news and we all like to kill the messenger as the old term goes but um, I, you know, I see I see burnout really bad in this place, and, and it happens at really difficult times as well. You know, 
security people are under a lot of stress, especially if you're in the instant response side of things, because you've got to fix things, but you've also got to maintain what's going on. You've got to figure out what's going on. You've got to communicate with different people. And I've, I've known really good security people who were just the best at what they do. Just, I, I you know, probably about five or six years ago, I saw one guy sit down at a in a boardroom and sob because he just had enough um and it was the way he was treated the way he was viewed within the company he was doing his best to protect the company from both itself and external people but because people didn't want to do things people would always point fingers at security if something went wrong you know or you know they'd say that firewall rule that you implemented has has now stopped half the business from doing what it needs to do to survive yada 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 and he used to get overruled a lot and and he just he just couldn't cope in the end and and fell over and i think that claims a lot more people um and again in the pandemic when you suddenly go from being in a very stressful environment and dealing with these people who are in your face because you're in the office and then all of a sudden you're not in the office and you can see the beautiful stars and sun and flowers and butterflies and you realize you know why am i sat in a boardroom getting shouted at because of somebody else's idiocy you know screw that i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm gonna go but i see i see andrew wants to sit in so i shut up <laughs> no you could go on all day could listen to you all day james no worries about that uh andrew yeah, no, I, I, I think I think what you said is is spot on. Um, you know, I've I've seen people hit burnout. I've I've seen people weep, like you say, and and disappear and and come back in six weeks, and they're never the same. Once somebody hits burnout, it it's such a huge piece of you that that gets hit hard. You know, it affects you at home, it affects you with your family, friends. Uh, it affects your confidence when you come back to work, and and it it's not just hit a wall, get past it move on it's it, there's such a like a, a legacy piece to it that goes on and on and on but i also see and, and this tends to get really angry is is there's a section of the community that thinks if you're not up at three in the morning eating pringles drinking coke and and staring at a terminal you're doing it wrong and why aren't you doing that and and i see you know some of those same people and i've worked with them where their health deteriorates very quickly but then they recover and they come back and they're still you know i, I worked with one guy who he, you know he was east coast us and he would join our 10 a.m uk call on a tuesday and i'd say you know and he would give his name away then i said you know it's 5 a.m with you this is ridiculous what are you doing and he says you know well once you get to this level that's that's part of the part of the deal and i, and I massively disagreed with it the, the other fallout piece of that though is when coming back to our new starters is that is I don't want them emulating that behavior. Yeah. Right. Because it's 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 a road to destruction. Right. And exactly. regardless of your business, regardless of your loyalty and how good your managers are, once you get to that top, there's there's practically no one that will care when you hit that wall. And I think if we don't teach these people joining this wonderful field that we work in. And I mean that because I, I love my job. Mm. But if we don't teach them that they have to put their health and their well-being and their family and their and their mental their mental health first, we're just going to go through this continuous cycle of they'll get really, really good and then they'll crash and burn. And then the next one comes in, they'll get really, really good and they'll crash and burn. And and we'll have those recycled horror stories of I mean suicide you you know I, I don't hear so much about it now but especially with the pandemic you know I, I'd see on Twitter you know really high standing people in in the community have committed suicide you know and and for various reasons but it, it's 
we have to get away from this whole I have battle scars because I, you know, I, I once did a 48 hour shift. It's like that's really, really bad for you. And I've done it. I've done it. I've, I've, I've worked those shifts. Would I want to do it now? Absolutely not. If I had a new starter, would I want them to do it? Younger, fitter, healthier? No, I, I really wouldn't because it's once you push them down that track, there's no good that comes from that. Thanks for that uh, answer there, Andrew. And thanks uh, to the Phoebe for your questions and answers today. Some really good insights. Hopefully you've all enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank the Phoebe for joining me outside of your busy schedules to come together and have a great conversation around such an important topic for most businesses as they look to grow we'll leave it there for now this has been the evolution exchange podcast thank you for listening